Excellent. Excellent. Good morning, Woodland Hills. It's good to see you all here this morning. Uh, I don't think it was announced, but we're having... Uh, did you announce Good Friday service this Friday? I, I, yeah, we, uh, can we make a know that next service? Uh, yeah, we're having Good Friday service this Friday. Uh, it's at 7 o'clock, and is that right, 7 o'clock? Okay, so uh, come and be a part of that. We'll do some reflections upon perspectives on the cross and things like that. Um, also, uh, just uh, by way of information, uh, yes, Shauna's got the funkiest glasses in the house, and we're all envious. Those are really cool. I got to get me a pair of, of those. And when she talks about scandalous love, we want to encourage you not to Google that. Uh, It's different than love scandals, okay? Scandalous love. It's, it's, uh, so when, when Sean says if you want to find out more about scandalous love, we're talking about the love of God that's scandalous. There's other kinds of love that are uh, scandalous that we are not going to encourage. And, and that series will be starting right after Easter. We got the dates wrong in the bulletin. Uh, but they'll be starting right after Easter. And finally, uh, our, our uh, uh, Longest Journey Award goes to Adam. Adam, where are you? You traveled nine hours to come to service this morning. There he is. Okay, say hi to Adam. There. Woo! Came up from Indiana just to come to church. Uh, those are the kind of parishioners we really love. We love all of our parishioners, but uh, yeah, that, 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 that's great. Well, we're, we're finishing up a series here on uh, uh, Kingdom Economics. It was planned on being three, uh, but we've carried it over to four because there's just a few questions left that are just too good to pass up. Uh, all these questions have to do with blessing, which seems to be such a, uh, a popular notion in uh, American Christianity. Talks, we talk a lot about blessings. I'm convinced that a lot of this talk about blessing is unbiblical, and some of it I think is absolutely unintelligible, which is why I'm happy to take this opportunity to address some issues uh, about what it is to be blessed uh, in terms of finances and things of that sort. So I'm entitling this message, Questionable Blessings. Questionable blessings. And I want to read, I'll start by reading from 2 Corinthians uh, 9, which is the longest passage in the New Testament uh, concerning uh, blessings. And I'm hoping that by the time I'm done reading this, I'll have stopped sweating from that last song we did. Because that thing just rocked. I mean, that's, that, that's, that's Christian aerobics. That was just great. I just loved it. And those who are listening to podcasts, podcast, that is one thing you absolutely miss uh, when you're not in the service here is, is the worship. And uh, that, that, that just uh, was, was great. So here we are, 2 Corinthians 9. Remember this, Paul says, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you've decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. There's not supposed to be any kind of compulsion um, on, the, uh, on Christian giving. It comes from the heart, a cheerful, cheerful heart. And God is able to bless you abundantly, so that in all things at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. That's God's plan. Meet your needs and then the surplus you can put to uh, meeting others' needs, blessing others and furthering the work of the kingdom. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge your harvest, the harvest of your righteousness. You will be made rich in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion and through us your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. Because Paul's taking up an offering for the poor uh, in Macedonia. Okay, let's, uh, let's pray here for a moment. Father, we just submit this message to you. We pray a fence around it. That uh, nothing could uh, come in to distract us uh, or to uh, cause us to misinterpret what is said uh, or to raise up barriers of protection in our life against the truth. 
Lord, help us to lower all of our defenses, to hear your word, pure, pristine form, uh, and to be encountered by your word, confronted by your word if need be, encouraged by your word if need be, transformed by your word. Let your word go forth in spirit and in power. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said. Amen. Amen. Four questions uh, that we have. Some of these have come in. I've combined a couple of questions, reworded a couple of questions. In one case, I just took a question that was asked me but wasn't sent in. But here's four remaining questions, all of them pertaining to blessing. This first question I get a lot. Um, and it's almost always from people who are, are new to the church, uh, coming from more traditional backgrounds that taught a lot about tithing and things of that sort. Um, and so this question, about once every couple months, I, I get some version of this question. It goes like this, in this case. person wrote and said, Our previous church insisted that, while it's good to give to the poor, our tithe had to go to the temple. Referring to the church. They also taught that if you don't tithe, we're robbing God. But if we did tithe, God would bless us by increasing our harvest. How come we never hear about this at Woodland Hills Church? All right. Happy to respond to this question. Here's a little background on it. The, the, the Jews uh, in the Old Testament were under the Old Covenant. That's what the word testament actually means, Old Covenant. And... At the center of the Old Covenant was what I would call a tithe and temple system. As part of their taxation, they had to pay taxes just like we do. And, and part of their taxation went to supporting, maintaining the temple and supporting the priesthood. Uh, 10% of their income, that, that's what the tithe is, had to go to supporting the temple and uh, uh, maintaining the temple and supporting the Levites who were the, the ones who carried out all the sacrifices and stuff that went on in the temple. They also had 17% of their income, had to go to other stuff just to run the nation, but 10% went just for the temple. That was the, uh, the, the Old Covenant. So under the Old Covenant, you had to tithe, give 10% to the temple. Under the Old Covenant, you had to bring it to the temple. Under the Old Covenant, if you didn't do that, you were robbing God. And under the Old Covenant, uh, if you did do that, you'd get blessed by God. But we're not under the Old Covenant. We're under the New Covenant, and in the New Covenant, the one that was inaugurated by the uh, death and resurrection of Jesus Christ that we'll be celebrating this next weekend, under the New Covenant, there is no temple. Because under the New Covenant, we are the temple of God. And because there's no temple, there's no temple priesthood. And because there's no temple priesthood, there's no temple tax. Uh, and because there's no temple tax, there's no tithe, which is why you never hear about uh, a doctrine of tithing in the New Testament. And that's why we don't teach it as a doctrine here at Woodland Hills Church. It really is that simple. In the New Testament, we're to consider that everything that we have belongs to God. In the New Testament, we're to understand that we are the temple of God. There's no building that, that God specially inhabits and that we need to maintain. There's a building we gather in, but it's just a building. We are the house of God, and God abides in us. And in the New Testament, we're then to seek God uh, as to how he would have us steward his resources because it all belongs to him. And if you believe in what God is doing through a local gathering, a church, then undoubtedly God will lead you to give some of what he, he wants you to give away to the church. But he also may lead you to give some to the poor, to other charities and things of that sort because it belongs to him. But there's no fixed percentage point, and there's certainly no one location that you have to give a fixed percentage point to. That is all Old Covenant thinking. And so we encourage people just to see all of the resources belonging to God and to seek God's will as to how he would lead them uh, to steward those resources. Now that freaks some pastors out. 
We, uh, a couple of years ago, had a, a, a ministry moment like we have here a lot. And, and as we frequently do, we had a, a ministry up here that's kind of a, associated with Woodland Hills Church. But then we had the ministry out in the gathering area, and we encourage people to go back there. And if God leads them to give to this ministry, to give that ministry. And a pastor who was visiting afterwards came up to me and said, you know, I, I'm surprised by that policy. Uh, aren't you concerned that people might start giving more to other ministries than to your own ministry? Aren't you concerned that you might not be able to support the, the ministries that, that you're carrying on and might not be able to support all the pastors that you have and you yourself, you know, might not have a job? Aren't you concerned about that? And the answer I gave him, and it's the answer I'd give now, is, is, is just this. Uh, if that was taught in the New Testament, I would teach it, but it's not, so I don't. And at some point, you just got to decide whether you're going to trust God or not. Faith has to play a role here at some point. Do we trust God or not? And the job of the pastor, according to the New Testament, the job of pastors, those who are set aside to shepherd the flock and, and of evangelists and, and, and teachers and whatnot, the job, it says in Ephesians 4, is to empower the saints for the work of ministry. Uh, the work of the ministry is done by the saints, the people of God, and pastors do their ministry by helping the flock do their ministry. And part of the ministry of everybody is, is how God leads you to steward his resources, how you invest your money. So we want to empower people to follow God as they, uh, you know, uh, seek how they should steward God's resources. But our job is not to manipulate the flock for job security purposes, to make sure that we get our cut or something of the sort. And so our, our policy is just we make known the needs and ask people to seek God's will and just trust that if this is of God and people are listening to God, well, then this need will be met. And if it's not of God and or if people aren't listening to God, well, then, then we, we just move on from there. Uh, but we're not going to start pulling back an Old Testament doctrine just because it would give us some job security. At the same time, I want to say this, that the, the tithe was actually in place not in any kind of official way, but before the law even came, in fact, before there's even a nation of Israel, we find in Genesis, Abraham paying a tithe to Melchizedek. So that concept predates Israel, which makes it kind of a pattern to pay attention to. And so I always encourage people in, in, in this way. It's not a law. It's not some kind of a fixed thing. You're not robbing God if you're not giving 10%. You're robbing God if you're not giving what he's telling you to give, whatever percentage that might be. But there's no fixed percentage point that you can measure it by. At the same time, I encourage people to see that pattern as sort of a benchmark of sorts. My wife and I look at that pattern, and, and, we, and we think this way. If we who live far above the global average in terms of our standard of living, if we can't give 10% of our income away, something is wrong with our priorities. And, uh, and so that's like a minimum benchmark for us. Now we want to move beyond that, and, and, and uh, you know, as we learn to live more simply and, and more frugally, um, uh, to move that up to 20 to 30 to 40 percent as, as the Lord leads and enables us. But as a minimum benchmark, I think it's a good policy. But it's not a law. We're, we're not under compulsion, as Paul said in 2 Corinthians 9. We're to give of a cheerful, a cheerful heart that has sought the Lord's will. Second question. person asks this, and I've gotten this several times in various ways uh, from, from various people during this uh, crisis, economic crisis that we're in. My wife and I have always lived frugally, given generously, tithed faithfully, and saved wisely. Yet due to circumstances beyond our control, we, now, uh, we, we, we are now almost completely broke and on the verge of losing everything. I feel completely abandoned by God 
didn't he promise us that we would reap what we sow? Very good question. And what I want to start, before I give an answer to this, start by just uh, validating the feeling. When the bottom drops out, regardless of what your theology is, it's, it's understandable that you'd feel abandoned. Uh, and, you know, you feel like the, you get mad at everything sometimes, and, and I, I don't want to invalidate that, that feeling. Uh, at the same time, I want to give some teaching around it that can maybe empower folks to get out of that sentiment eventually. As we saw in 2 Corinthians 9, which we read at the start of this message, the principle that we reap what we sow is not simply an Old Testament doctrine. It is that, but this is one of those that is carried over to the New Testament, and that's why we pay attention to it. If it wasn't in the New Testament, then it would have much less uh, force and authority over us than it has. But Paul explicitly teaches that we reap what we sow. That is an important, vitally important life principle of kingdom living, to trust that you'll sow what you reap. It is an important kingdom principle. But, and this is an important but, it is not magic. It's not magic. Magic is when you think you have a prayer or some behavior which if you engage in it or if you pray it, there's some guaranteed result, a formula. If you just do the formula, well then this has got to happen. That's magic. A principle is something which is generally true. You can live by it. But it admits of exceptions and it admits of a variety of applications. So here's a good principle to live by. Be nice to people and they'll be nice to you. That's a true principle. But you will invariably at some point in your life find somebody who's going to be nasty to you no matter how nice you are to them. I spoke about one several weeks ago that I met in the airport, you may recall. <laughs> that lady of unsurpassable worth. And, and, you know, see, if this was magic, then if you were nice to people, the universe or God or something would just declare that all of a sudden everyone has to be nice to you. Which would mean that if you're nice to people, you take away their free will, and now they have to be nice to you. God doesn't do that, which is why there is no magic in the universe, folks. But there are true principles. They're generally true. Reap what you sow is an important life principle, important kingdom principle. Uh, God hardwired it into creation. It has his character. He's a self-giving God, so it's hardwired into creation. That when we live in a generous way and pouring ourselves out, it will come back to us in a variety of ways. This is the best way to live. It's the most fulfilling way to live. It's the most rewarding way to live. You'll have more joy and more peace, more contentment if you're an outrageously generous person. But it's not magic. People who have really learned to hold on loosely to their possessions and to live with outrageous generosity, they tend to find that it comes back on them even financially. Yes, there's joy and peace and all that, but even financially, it tends to work that way. My wife and I have been amazed time and time again how we at some points have felt led to make sacrifices that we hadn't planned for and, and really couldn't afford, but we just feel like we're supposed to do it. And not invariably, but generally speaking, before too long, some, it, money comes to us in ways that we didn't expect. Either somebody just feels led of God to give us something or, or something that, that uh, you know, uh, we sold goes for more than, than we thought it was going to go for or whatnot. Uh, it just comes back on us. Generally speaking, but it's not magic. This isn't God's secret magical plan on how to get rich. A lot of Christians treat it that way. But see, if that was the case, then God would have to invalidate everyone else's free will to make that happen. 
Your financial state at any given moment is going to be influenced by a lot of factors. The decisions that other people make, the decisions that banks make, for example. Uh, a lot of decisions affect your financial state. Uh, and so it's not a matter of magic. If you just look at Paul or Jesus, you'll see this. Paul believed in this principle. He taught this principle. But did he die a rich man? No. He died in prison and then got executed. Same thing with Jesus. He believed this principle in various ways, taught this principle, but he got himself crucified. So this isn't some kind of magical thing that means that you're going to ride into the sunset as a wealthy person. Reap what you sow. It's not magic. There's a lot of people in Haiti who have reaped a whole lot of wonderful things, but they still suffered under the earthquake. Or Zimbabwe, or go to a lot of countries. There's generous, godly, wonderful people who abide by this principle, but they're dirt poor. And see, if you believe that this is some kind of a magical thing, well, then you think that they just didn't do the magic right. They didn't have enough faith or something like that. And that just is going outside of Scripture. The principle is true, but a lot of factors influence our finances, including the free will of other people. You maybe gave, uh, you know, $1,000 in the offering this morning. <laughs> Praise God for that. But it could be the case that you walk out and someone's going to rob you. And now you're dirt poor because the robber still has free will. You can be a generous giver, and because of decisions bank, banks make or, or whoever, you lose your 401k plan. That doesn't mean that God's abandoning you. It just means that you live in a war zone where a lot of things affect what comes to pass. You, you, you can be a generous giver, and your house can burn to the ground the day after you canceled your insurance. Sometimes life acts, does that to us. It doesn't mean God has abandoned you. It just means you live in a war zone. But I can promise you this, that, that if you live with outrageous generosity, you will be rich. Uh, even if you're dirt poor, even if your house burns to the ground, even if you end up getting robbed, even if you lose your 401k plan, if you reap what you sow, you'll receive blessings in other ways. You have that peace that passes understanding. If you know who you are in Christ, you know who Jesus is. You, you're aware of the Holy Spirit abiding within you. You're a rich person. I don't care if you don't have a dime. Uh, you know, to know where you're going, to know the internal, eternal inheritance that you have. I told you, to know that you're seated with Christ in heavenly places and, that, and, and to know that the, the fruit of the Spirit abides in you makes you incredibly wealthy. And the more you live with outrageous generosity in every way that you can, the more you'll experience that. And generally speaking, it will even come back on you financially, but it's not magic. So you don't need to feel abandoned by God because of this financial situation. I encourage you just to keep living with outrageous generosity and um, being faithful to Him. And be rich in every way that you are rich. And keep trusting him. Third question. And now we're going to get a little more philosophical. But it's also extremely practical. Uh, these are our two sets of questions that came in that are just, I think, so insightful. I don't know if you know it or not, but, but uh, Woodland Hills Church has a higher IQ than most churches. I just thought you'd want to know that. If you, if you, you're proud if you are going here. <laughs> I look at, uh, this is some really good theological questions, and I, I love it. I love it. Uh, this person asks this. If people should not interpret misfortune as a curse of God, as you teach, why should we consider good fortune, including financial wealth, to be a blessing of God? That's brilliant. And, and I, I, I delight in questions like this. People are thinking about stuff. I don't take, I get intimidated by that. I get jazzed by questions like that. Okay, here's the, here's the background to this question. It's an, it's an important one. As, as most of you know, many, many Christians believe that everything that happens uh, is done by God, is willed by God, even tragic stuff. So when the 35W bridge collapsed and some people got killed, well, that's God punishing us. Or when there's an earthquake, well, that's God punishing us. Or, or even when innocent people, uh, you know, get killed, it's all part of God's plan. A little child gets, 
killed by a drunk driver, and there's a lot of Christians who will say, well, you know, God's timing is always the right timing. God knows what he's doing. Nothing happens by accident. Um, and God, providence writes straight with per- crooked lines and things of that sort. That is not what we teach here at Woodland Hills Church. Um, I, I believe that humans and angels have free wills, which means that we can will things that are not God's plan and purpose, and when we do, it can affect others for the worse. In fact, I, I believe that every aspect of creation that doesn't reflect the character of God as revealed in Jesus Christ is ultimately due to some will other than God, which is why I don't believe that earthquakes and famines and, and diseases and mudslides and and, and drunk driving is, is a part of God's perfect plan. I think that that's, that that's, at least indirectly, sometimes directly, the plan of Satan and other agents that are aligned with, with him. And that's what makes this world a war zone and why nasty stuff sometimes happens to very good people. Which is why I don't interpret collapsing bridges or earthquakes and things of that sort as being uh, somehow part of, of a curse that God's bringing on folks. Sometimes when you get affected negatively in life, God's always at work to bring good out of it. He'll use it to teach us whatever. But the the evil that we suffer itself is not part of God's perfect plan. It's a result of wills other than God, willing against God's will. And um, uh, sometimes it's just a matter of being in the wrong place at the wrong time. The little kid's out in the middle of the street chasing a ball. The drunk driver happens to be driving by and boom, being at the wrong place at the wrong time. Life in the war zone is like that. So this question is asking very astutely, very wisely asking this. Look at if, if misfortune is just being in the wrong place at the wrong time, well then, why not think good fortune is simply being at the right place at the right time? And so why do we even talk about God's blessing? We just got lucky. Good point. Okay, uh, here, here, here's, here, here's how I'd answer that. It's going to be a little bit nuanced, so put your thinking caps on. If you've been sleeping up to this point, wake up! And put your thinking caps uh, on and, and, and uh, hear this out. I have to concede that good fortune is to some extent being at the right place at the right time. I didn't do anything in a pre-existent life to, to uh, earn the right to be born in America rather than Haiti or Zimbabwe or something. That, that, I, I, in that sense, just got lucky. Of course, God created me here, but I, I, I didn't do anything to deserve that. And if you think about most of the positive things in your life, you'll see that to some degree, at least, it's the result of, of, of fortunate decisions. It could be the case that if I, I told you, I think uh, a couple weeks ago, that uh, uh, I could have got luckier in life if it wasn't for that one idiot uh, relative of mine back in the 13th century or 12th century that captured the, 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 the feudal lord's daughter and held her for ransom. We were royalty back then. Boyds were somebody, and then we got kicked out of uh, Scotland, and our name was Mud. I could have been somebody. Decisions of people affect us. But it could be the case that if uh, my great-great-grandfather had, had not given up drinking, had, 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 I'm just making this up, by the way, but if he'd, he'd drunk himself into the ground, and well, then maybe I wouldn't have the blessings I have right now or the good fortune that I have right now. So I have to uh, concede that to some degree uh, what we have is just the result of being in the right place at the right time. But I still believe we can, in fact, we must label that a blessing from God. Because if it wasn't for God, I don't think... Good stuff would come to us by any means. It says in James that every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. Every good thing ultimately comes from God. Just like every evil thing ultimately comes from wills other than God, every good thing ultimately comes from God. Now, he doesn't meticulously apply it, 
But if it wasn't for his goodness permeating creation, none of us would have the good stuff that we have. So we need to be a people who give thanks to God for every good thing. The sun that's shining today, thank God. The air that we have to breathe, thank God. That we have lungs that can breathe them, thank God. If you've got eyes that can see, you thank God for those eyes. If you've got loved ones, you thank God for that. If you've got a job, well, then you thank God for that because there's a lot of people who don't. Uh, you know, if you've got a newborn child, you thank God for that. Now, it's also the case that you and your, 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 your husband or wife had something to do with that, right? <laughs> it didn't just drop from the newborn baby, didn't drop from the sky. So give thanks to your spouse as well, but also give thanks to God because he's the giver of all life. Not only is God good, but God is gracious because he gives us all this despite our sin. Despite this world being oppressed by demonic powers, God's grace breaks through in multitude of different ways, on the just and on the unjust. So it's appropriate and necessary to give thanks to God. All the sickness, disease, earthquakes, collapsing bridges, premature deaths, all of that, well, you know, that, that's part of the war zone. God uses it for good, but that, that doesn't come directly from God. But all of our health and all that's beautiful and all that's good and all that is, it brings about peace and joy, we should give thanks to God. Despite the fact that some of it is the result of us just being born in the right place and the right time and things of that sort. Which leads directly to my fourth question. And this is the most dicey question. This is my favorite question, but it may not be yours. But please hear me out. Whenever I get on this... Well, look at it. Here we go. Uh, but this is important. This is, so, this, is, this is so important. And it's so insightful. How come most American Christians assume we are a blessed nation because of our wealth... Look at how blessed we are. When so much of this wealth was acquired by genocide, slavery, exploitation of the poor, greed, and militarism. That uh, is an excellent question. And it requires a nuanced answer, so keep your thinking caps up and lower your defenses. Three things I want to say here. First, here's what I like about this question. It appropriately confronts that widespread Christian assumption that God has blessed us with wealth because we are a Christian nation. It is so important, as I emphatically teach here a number of times, it's so emphatically important that we reject that idea. Because among other things, it assumes, if you think that God has given us all this wealth because we're a Christian nation, then that assumes that God was back there helping the European, quote-unquote, Christians come over here and conquer and slaughter the, slaughter the natives and import uh, uh, slaves from Africa and break treaties and all the other things. God was involved in all that. He was on our side against them. In fact, tragically, that is exactly what the early conquistadors believed. They had this manifest destiny doctrine, which, if you look at it in its original form, it, 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 it was teaching that it is obvious, it's a self-evident truth, that God has ordained that white people run America and ultimately the world. It was a racist doctrine, an explicitly racist doctrine. And so they thought God was on their side to subjugate all other people. That idea reduces the beautiful God revealed in Jesus Christ to, down to a petty tribal warrior deity. That idea transforms the beauty of a God who gave his life for all people into a petty nationalistic God who sacrifices some people for the sake of his preferred tribe. And to transform the beauty of the God revealed in Jesus Christ for that very pagan nationalistic tribal picture of God, well, that, that borders on blasphemy. 
And it, it desecrates the beauty of the name of God. You know, the Lord's Prayer says, you know, the first thing we pray is, Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. That means we keep your name sacred. It's set apart. It's different from everything else. But when we loop it into all that nationalistic warfare, all we do is pollute his name. We desecrate his name. The truth is that the way the American empire was made strong and rich was the way empires throughout history have always been made strong and rich. If you study the rise of empires, including the American empire, they all have at least this in common. One group of people or an alliance of peoples uh, got some advantage over some other people and they conquered them. And they attribute that victory to some national god, whether it's Zeus or Jupiter or whatever, they, they, they credit their nationalistic god. In the case of Americans, Europeans had superior technology. That was probably the most important advantage. We had superior numbers, military know-how, and some other things. So we saw what we wanted. We came and we took it. And then we attributed it to our national god. The tragedy is that that national god is supposedly Jesus. And now the beauty of Jesus is being transformed into all of this empire warfare stuff. It's so important that we keep those things distinct, radically distinct. I appreciate the question for calling that assumption, widespread assumption, very pagan assumption into question. Secondly, I appreciate the fact that this, this question calls into question the assumption that wealth is a blessing in the first place. Now, you find that in God's covenant with the people of the Old Testament, but it's not considered that way under the New Covenant. We said several weeks ago that wealth is not evil in and of itself. We don't want to go to that extreme either. But it's certainly not a blessing in and of itself. It can be a blessing, as I'll say here in a moment, but in and of itself, it's not a blessing. In fact, the New Testament regards it as very dangerous. As we said several weeks ago, there's this principality and power that Jesus names mammon. And that principality and power can use wealth to suck us in, to get us to uh, forsake the, uh, the Jesus lifestyle of kingdom living, uh, to get us to become self-centered and apathetic towards the poor, to, to transform us into idolaters who are, who are perpetually chasing after stuff. And when wealth is used by principalities and powers to do that to us, wealth becomes a curse, not a blessing. Which is why, by the way, Jesus said, Woe to the rich, and blessed are the poor, and be on your guard against all kinds of greed and things of that sort. Because wealth can be a curse. So you can't assume that because America's got more wealth than just about everybody else, that we're more blessed than everybody else. The reality is that victorious empires have always gotten more wealth. That's partly why they conquer. And the sad truth is that pagan empires throughout history have always credited their tribal deity with giving them their wealth. And sadly, that's what much of American Christianity does, transforming Jesus into a tribal deity who gives us the most toys, and the proof of that is that he helped us win. That's not what the God revealed in Jesus Christ on the cross does. The reality is that the question's right, that much of America's wealth was acquired unjustly, and much of it has made people greedy and apathetic towards the poor. And to that degree, it's a curse. It's a curse. But the third point is this. And here it has to get very nuanced, so be paying careful attention. Like everything else, wealth can be a blessing. It can be a curse. What determines what it is is how we use it. How we use it. When we commit ourselves to using wealth right, then it falls into the category of James 1, 
which tells us that every good gift comes from the Father above. However it got to us, it's a good thing, and all good things ultimately go back to God. So it is a, a blessing. If I'm using the, the wealth that I have as a blessing, what it means is I shouldn't feel guilty about the fact that to some degree what I have is the result of being born in the right place at the right time, and to some degree having the right skin color. I, I'm privileged, and I'm aware of that. But if I commit to using that to confront some of the injustices that got me in the first place, well, then it is a blessing for which I should be thanking God. This is a perspective that's so important for, for a number of reasons, but one of them is this. Uh, there's a person who I talked to during our Compassion by Command conference, and uh, I've had questions like this uh, from several people. Uh, this was a white person who was, who was kind of waking up to the reality of the meaning of whiteness and that not all things are equal and that your, your experience isn't the norm and, and that there's, a, there's, other, there's other experiences that people who aren't white have that, that you need to know about and waking up to some of the history that put the white folks in the privileged position. And they're waking up to all that and that's a beautiful, good thing, necessary. But what was happening is they were living in guilt and condemnation for that looking at all the genocide and slavery and other things that put them in this privileged position, they now are looking at it and they're feeling indicted for it. It's really good and important necessary to wake up to the reality, the history of how the powers have played us. And that ought to make us, you know, less inclined to cash in on our good luck and use it all for ourselves. But guilt and condemnation are never kingdom sentiments that kingdom people should be living in. Conviction, yes. But living in guilt for something that you didn't choose, well, that, that's just not of God, and it drives you into the ground. Look at this. Paul said this in 1 Timothy 6. He says to uh, Timothy, who is a pastor at Ephesus, command those who are rich in this present world, and that is by global standards most in America, not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. It's a blessing. And you can enjoy it. At the same time, command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds. Be as rich in good deeds as you are rich. And to be generous and willing to share. Now, here's the thing. Greece, which is where Ephesus is located, Greece, like every other country, uh, on the planet had been through a number of different wars. That's just how it is in this war zone. Countries come, they conquer, they take, they steal, and, and, and so there's always warfares that go on. The Romans, the Greeks, it, it, it had been a war zone, a long history of war. And like all countries where wars have taken place, namely all countries, some benefit from that and some don't. And the ones who benefit are the ones who tend to cash in on the wealth. And so Greece had its wealthy people and its poor people, it even had uh, kind of an institutionalized slavery. The people who were conquered were slaves. And yet Paul here tells the rich, even though there's this history that just by their good fortune put them in this position of privilege, tells them that they are blessed. They are blessed. Even, and they could even enjoy some of that. Don't go out living in condemnation over that. But here's what it means to be blessed. You are a blessing to others. You use the wealth and the privilege that you have to confront even some of the injustices that put you in that position. You use your wealth to bring it under alignment to the kingdom of God and to carry out his will on earth as it is, you, 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 as it is in heaven. You use your wealth to further the purposes of God in this world. You live without gen outrageous generosity. And when you do that now, that is a blessing. Even though God doesn't approve of some of the 
nasty stuff that went on to get you there, God is always at work in everything to bring good out of evil. And one of the good that he can bring out of the evil of war is that those who benefit from it, if they will surrender their hearts to him, he can now use that to further his kingdom, to help the poor, to bring justice into this world. And that's how it is here in America. Uh, many of us are benefactors of injustices of the past. We can't be indicted for that, condemned by that. We need to be aware of it. It should affect how we, what we do with our resources. But where we are at, every good thing comes from the Father above. However, it got there, and now if we will choose to use it to further his purposes, that too, even that, is a blessing from God. Because now we get to be a blessing to others, and there's no greater blessing on the planet than being able to bless other people. Your needs are met, and now you bless others. So the question I leave us with is simply this. Will we who have wealth surrender it to be used by God so it can be a blessing rather than a curse? If we hoard it, it's a curse. And the enemy uses it to destroy us and to block the flow of the kingdom in the world. But if we use it for a blessing, it becomes a blessing. It is a blessing to us as well. That's what Paul's getting at in 2 Corinthians 9. The blessing, the purpose of blessing is to be a blessing. And when we don't use it that way, it becomes a curse. I want to lead us in a prayer. Uh, not a liturgical prayer, uh, just sort of a prayer. So would you stand? We haven't done this for a while. Would you grab the hand of the person next to you? If you're not to the point where you can pray this prayer, then don't. I, you know, I, I'm not trying to manipulate anybody here. That doesn't do any good. But if this is on your heart and you're a kingdom person, I want you to pray this prayer after me. And this is our, our closing benediction. And I'll say before we even do that, that the altar is open at the end of the service. Our prayer teams will be up here. If you have any need whatsoever that you'd like to have prayed for, I encourage you to come forward here and uh, receive prayer. And don't forget, if you're open to leading uh, one of the small groups for Scandalous Love, to stop by at the ga- in the gathering area uh, at the hub and get the, uh, the information about that. But pray with me. Just repeat after me. Heavenly Father, pray like you mean it now. We, uh, we acknowledge that every good gift comes from you. And we thank you, Lord. For every good gift that we enjoy. And we pledge as your people right here and right now that we will surrender all that we have and all that we are over to you. And we ask you, Lord, to lead us and guide us on how you would have us steward your resources. Thank you for your blessings and help us to be a blessing to others that we may glorify you in how we live and how we talk and how we use our time and how we use your money. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said. God bless you guys. Go out and be a blessing to others. Build the kingdom.